If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Jessica Fuentes and I'm here with Daryl Ratcliffe, artist, poet, entrepreneur, co-founder of North Texas-based arts organizations, Gisipian Investments, Ash Studios, and Black Arts DFW. Thanks so much for joining us, Daryl. Thank you so much for having me. So we are here to talk a little bit about Unions. Unions. Wow. How did, how did this come about? How did this come about? I think that we were together in a place with some other arts administrators and artists, and this topic of the need for arts workers to form a union kind of arose, um, maybe organically, in conversation. And it seemed something that you're very excited about the potential of. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about why unions are important. Well, so, you know, I think at the time and place we were in, uh, we were in the middle of the the writer's strike, um, the actor's strike. Mm -hmm. You know, it was this great moment of um, seeing creatives and other fields take a, you know, take a pretty strong stance of, hey, not only are our current environments um, not the best from an uh, economic standpoint, but what we see coming in the future um, is even more frightening, and this is where we're going to kind of make a stand while, while we can. And that was pretty inspiring to see that kind of uh, collective action. And so I think that is, you know, probably one of the reasons of people kind of thinking, I think in other fields, whether it's music, whether it's visual arts, mm-hmm. of what would that sort of solidarity kind of mean? And, um, and across the last decade, I think you have like a lot of history of in visual arts. I think from my mind, at least, it was kind of adjunct faculty that were kind of leading the way in terms of unions, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, 2012, 13, 14, around there. And then you saw various museum workers um, at institutions also um, trying to unionize. And um, and always, you know, kind of as a, as a conceptual and structural human, um, thinking, you know, how far can you take that and what would that mean? Um, is there a way for artists, for cultural workers, uh, for the people who are so essential to this um, industry we call uh, arts and culture? Is there a way for them to kind of have really the basics? Um, Because there's so many of us who work in this field who are um, living in such precarious 
conditions. Um, I think the pandemic really helped reveal that um, of how many people, you know, who are in arts and culture make less than $30,000 a year mm-hmm. um, is, is a sizable, sizable chunk, um, less than 50000 most everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and in places like, you know, Dallas and Fort Worth where you have the price of living so different than it was a decade ago. I was reading something and it was like, in 2012, you needed $38,000 to buy a home. And uh, 2023, it was like 114,000 or 110. Um, so that's just like a, a sign of how much things are changing and and how are we going to advocate for ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you talked about uh, museum workers who are working to unionize, and that is definitely something that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Like we saw across the United States that during the pandemic, nonprofit organizations in particular struggled to keep their staff on board because they didn't have visitors coming to these institutions. They were closed um, and they didn't have the funds to continue to pay staff. And so across the U.S. you see uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art maybe kind of led the way um, with unions and museums, but also organizations like the Art Institute of Chicago and the Guggenheim um, followed suit. And, And just as you're saying, you know, as we see the price of things rise, because uh, the same kinds of housing issues are happening in Fort Worth, and I'm assuming are happening across Texas, um, where we see this huge increase in the cost of living over the last decade. And we don't see that same increase reflected in salaries, right, especially for um, cultural workers. For me, when I've been thinking about unions, I have been thinking mostly about cultural workers, but it's interesting to hear you talk about visual artists. Um, I come from an art education background, and so I'm also used to thinking about teachers' unions, um, right? And the pros and cons of what comes with that. Um, But the idea of how do visual artists come together to form a union and what could that look like um, is kind of mind-boggling to me. I don't know. Do you have... You have thoughts of what that might be? Well, maybe. <laughs> I would. I want to take a step back. Okay. Because um, I think, I think one of the reasons why the idea is exciting to me, is because uh, there's still a myth. I think has been chipped away at, uh, thankfully. But there's still a myth of of the artist as uh, a genius individual mm-hmm. who's alone. And um, and that's simply, that's never been true. Um, and it's definitely not true now. And so I think that conceptually, uh, the nice thing about um, artists being part of a union is that it kind of forces anyone who participates in the project to think about uh, collective care. Mm-hmm. Um, and a way that I think structurally the art world is kind of designed for to have you not think about that. Right. It's kind of, you know, it kind of keeps you in maybe a little bit of a place of competition mm-hmm. and not um, and not solidarity and community. Right. Um, but those are the things I think that have the biggest opportunities to actually save um, and empower um, many of us. And so... 
that's that's like the first thing that makes this exciting. Sorry, before you go on to your second thing, I I want to dive into that a little bit deeper for a second. Right. So <laughs> when we introduced you, we talked about these three organizations that you co-founded. We we mentioned them. We mentioned these three organizations that you co-founded. But you're sitting here talking about collective care. And I wonder if you can tell me more about how that plays a role in these organizations that you are a part of. Great. Um, absolutely. So, um, you know, my training as an artist, I uh, was very fortunate to have Rick Lowe as a mentor of mine. And so this idea of uh, the socially engaged way of looking at the world um, and making through collaboration um, has been very bat- been baked into my practice. And um, and so at Studios, which is uh, with my wonderful creative partner, Fred Villanueva, we actually turn 11 um, in November. And so, like, I think a lot about how Ash is... To two humans who like trust each other, mm-hmm. like essentially that is all that Ash <laughs> is. I mean, yes, there is twenty thousand square feet of space, <laughs> and you know, like there's a lot of stats mm-hmm. um, to that. But everything like Ash hasn't you know, yet, maybe one day, um, but still hasn't ever been a nonprofit. Um, hasn't particularly ever been a for profit. <laughs> it's just been like. You know, hey, we we have shared values, and how far can these shared values of you know anti gentrification and um, creating space for artists of color and creating dialogue between Black people and Latino people like how far can that go? Mm-hmm. Um, and and over a decade, I can say it's it's gone it's gone far. Um, there are people you know who have who are able to sustain themselves um, because one way or another, there was something at Ash that they needed, um, whether it was physical, material, spiritual, that Mm -hmm. they're able to uh, find there. And that's a beautiful thing, you know. So that kind of roots um, the collectivity and then all the things that we've learned around around that, some of which help create uh, policy that still exists to this day in the city of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, helped thousands of artists. Um, you know, it kind of came from that same collective place. Uh, when I think about Black Art CFW, you know, it was, uh, shout out to Catherine and Miranda and McKellen, who are the co-founders of that organization. Um, you know, it was really rooted in, okay, there's this emerging um, Black arts movement in Dallas, um, that is really centered around artists. How do we also organize uh, collectors and next gen um, collectors to continue to support and sustain that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, long after it may or may not be a fad, mm-hmm. and so and that was kind of rooted in that. And then Gossy um, is really trying so hard. Um, working with brilliant people around the country to think about our economic uh, sustainability and uh, pathways to resources and capital that our field has frankly never had before. Um, And so really thinking about the structures of capital in a really big way nationally. 
and and so and so actually I think is maybe is gossy in a way <laughs> that's kind of so right now conceptually rooted in uh, capital investing, which also means it's rooted in many ways in capitalism. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think capitalism will save us. Um, even though I'm very invested in a project that is working within the confines of capitalism, because I think steps are necessary uh, to get from one place to another. Um, but I think those those things are more rooted in collectivism, and I don't think. They necessarily have to be mutually exclusive, mm -hmm. but things that are rooted more in community and collectivism are precisely the types of things that will create the new models that might sustain us in the future. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of why I went back to that conceptual steps before we went to the practical steps of what the union can do, because yeah. the union might not be the form. I don't know. Right. Um, I think is worth is an idea worth trying mm -hmm. um just for the learnings that you get in <laughs> trying things like sometimes we're afraid to try things because they might fail yeah. most things fail mm -hmm. um there's nothing wrong with failure um but you sometimes have to try like a few different things and have them not work before you land on the thing um that does yeah, and it makes sense that we would be talking about unions because they have such a long history in the United States, right? And so just as you're talking about how, you know, Gossi is partially, it's rooted in capitalism because that's the system that we're in, it makes sense that, you know, the next step or an, an idea of how to um, fix the precarious situation that we're in is going to have to come out of the systems and structures that currently exist. And then in doing that, perhaps something new starts to emerge and evolve. Yeah, were you were you familiar with um, with the wage people? Yeah, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. yeah, but can you explain a little bit about wage here so that our listeners can can be in on that too? Um, sh I yes, I will try. <laughs> um, so basically, it was it was a group, and I'm I'm saying was they very much still it might is. be is. Yeah. I think it's an is. Sorry, it is an is. sorry, wage. Um, but I remember when it was fresh, and so um, uh, they were doing this amazing work of basically trying to make pricing and art and museums, in particular, uh, more transparent. Like how much do you get paid? Mm -hmm. Is still a huge mystery of the art world. No one knows what anyone's making and how they're making it. Everyone's guarded about it. Um, it's this mysterious thing. And so they were trying to increase that transparency and get organizations to say, hey, this is at the very much our floor mm -hmm. for what we're going to pay artists, educators, anyone kind of coming in. This is what we agree to. Mm -hmm. And there's different levels depending on the size of the organization. Right. Um, I think one of the things that um, artists and art workers union here could do um, is just making those floors, um, whether they're like everyone kind of thinks that, oh, things have to be like legal, mm -hmm. right? And it's cool if you can do that. <laughs> Um, Texas is a state that makes it difficult to do that. Uh -huh. um, but you can still have norms. 
and social norms um, are very powerful as well. Um, and so, and so I think like having people know, hey, this is this is what this is our floor for like getting paid. Like don't 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 do it for less than this. Right. I think that honestly does a lot to increase just everyone's bottom line, mm-hmm. um, just knowing what to ask for and not just knowing what to ask for for the people who are procuring the services of our cultural workers and our artists, them knowing you know what to expect right. to pay because oftentimes it's, it's not like someone's trying to take advantage right. of someone as someone just has no idea. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of resources out there. And and just as you said, there's not a lot of transparency always, even uh, between institutions, um, about best practices, um, specifically regarding pay. And so having everybody on the same page would be an important first step. Yeah, like just getting very... Now now I'm zooming in. You got me (laughs) zooming in now. But uh, but this came up... This came up... um, very recently, last week for me in my life. And so, like, you're an artist. You're selling work at a gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, a collector wants to buy the work. The collector wants a discount. Mm. How does that go? <laughs> like, there is definitely no set floor for that. Um, does the discount come from the gallery? Does it come from the artist? Do they split it? How much of a discount? Should the collector ask for a discount? Like, none none of this, like, um, like I'm sure there's people who are like, oh, I didn't even know I could get a discount. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But that's, but that's transparency. Because it shouldn't necessarily be a secret. And I think, you know, when you're even talking about pricing of artworks, right, that is something that I hear artists across Texas as I'm, you know, traveling with Glass Tire and talking to artists about their work. That's something I feel like artists all over have questions about, you know, how do I price my art? How do I determine that even as, you know, the first point, let alone, you know, these next questions about discounts and and commission and, and all of these other things, right? Yeah. And then I think... As a, as a field, we're going to have the same technological problems that, um, that folks in other fields are going to have. Right. Like, what, what do you do when someone takes a picture of your, of your work, whatever it is, and um, now feeds that into um, an AI app? That can now generate endless variations of your uh, work mm-hmm. that now someone could just get printed on a nice canvas and hang in their home. What do we do, Jessica? <laughs> what do we do? I don't know. Um, it's scary and strange how quickly technology is moving and all of the implications. And I, I think that, you know, there are definitely um, people out there who are pushing the bounds of technology as they should, right? That's part of what artists do, is they push things through creativity and um, and they use the resources and technology that we have as it's being developed, right? Like that's always innovative and interesting things that are happening in art or coming out of new technology. Um, but then, yeah, how do we respond to that and make sure that artists are also protected? 
And for our larger institutions, mm-hmm. what are, what's like, what's their role? What's their purpose? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I've been thinking, this conversation has had me thinking a lot about. Um, because for a long time, I've, I've had a suspicion that there are people with capital and resources that value art but do not value artists Mm. and um, do not value the human infrastructure required to make art Mm. um, and present it and preserve it and all of that. Um, They just like the product. Um, So what role do our larger institutions have in their people mm-hmm. and in the community of artists um, and their kind of geographic area. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, you know, if if it's truly a lack of valuing uh, the human infrastructure or if it's maybe even more so a misunderstanding of what it takes, right, of putting a dollar amount on a product and not fully understanding all of the things that go into creating that product. And so, yeah, as larger institutions, it makes sense that educating people and revealing some of that, um, some of the reality behind the processes of things would be a role for institutions to play. Yeah, and I think the role of a union in that case Mm -hmm. is you know, kind of that advocacy, like who, when, when there's a meeting deciding what priorities are going to be for the institution, Mm -hmm. like, is there like real advocacy uh, for the people who work in that institution? Mm -hmm. Um, Like who, who are their advocates um, at like the higher levels of conversation? And, you know, I do not come from an institutional background. Um, there's been exactly one institution that I've worked for. Shout out to SMU Meadows. But um, um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I turn that question to you. <laughs> Who is the advocate for the workers? Yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of cultural workers find themselves asking, you know, asking themselves. Because oftentimes... Um, With any institution, when you go to HR, for example, um, the thought might be that HR is there for the staff. But in reality, HR is part of the system and is there to also protect the institution. So it's complex because there isn't always a clear and easy uh, determination of who that advocate is. So oftentimes cultural workers feel alone, they feel siloed, they feel like there's not conversations happening across institutions or even maybe within their institution um, about what's going on. And if there's not even conversations about what's happening, then there's definitely no conversations about how to advocate for yourself or who can help you advocate um for yourself and your team yeah and this made me think of you know another reason why a union would be interesting Mm -hmm. because it kind of 
helps visualize. I don't know if that's a real word, uh, but visualizes the the um, some of the problems and some of the issues. Mm-hmm. Like, um, for the sake of this conversation, let's suppose that um, all wealthy patrons and people who care about um, art and culture. Um, really are acting in a way that they feel is like of, of the greater good, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and so there is a way like via, via this concept where say there's a thousand, you know, artists and cultural workers across North Texas that are part of this. And like they can say, hey, these are like our top three things. Like if you want to like help like the greater, this is... <laughs> This is where you could put money towards. Like right now, like we we don't necessarily we don't necessarily need like a ton of money being spent on like more art. Um, um, we might like need like you know it might be healthcare or it might be you know like oh well just if y'all y'all are gonna spend ten million, like can you put ten million? Can you like just buy like like buy an apartment complex every year with the ten million, and <laughs> and then like have, and then like let artists and cultural workers like live in that apartment complex. Affordable housing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> like and then every year we get a we get a new one. Mm-hmm. Like that's dope. I think that would that would be pretty helpful. That sounds incredible. Um, but I think one of the problems is that you know people none of these ideas are new. Mm-hmm. Um. But they're often treated as like, oh, this is what you want. This is what you want. It's not treated as like, no, actually, this is like what an entire community um, says is a priority. Right. And I think that there could be some traction um, that happens when you get that sort of like, nah, this is what we stand for, whatever it may be. Um, and I think it helps with your advocacy. What do you see the role of advocacy organizations that already exist in the state of Texas, right? Like we have uh, the Texas Commission on the Arts. Do you see them meeting the needs of the arts industry currently? Or do you see areas where organizations like that could um, shift and grow and and refocus things? So um, our statewide advocacy organizations you know, they have a really difficult and important task, um, which is often they are the ones who are uh, working with the legislature, um, and they are they are often trying to carve out um, some dollars um, and, and an environment where there is not a ton of interests or desire and providing less dollars mm-hmm. um, but they've they've pursued this is my understanding um, they have pursued you know like a very narrow strategy of not pissing people off um, and making like very strategic like this isn't like basically trying to avoid culture wars focus on a economic uh, impact mm-hmm. argument and they've uh, been pretty successful mm-hmm. Um given the politics of the state and um, pretty consistently preserving and sometimes even expanding, uh, particularly via arts districts uh, and cultural districts, money from the state. So 
shout out to that work. It's not easy. Um, however, <laughs> there is additional work that's that's uh, needed, and it might be work that's you know kind of more more local in a way or more uh, regional because Texas, as you know better than myself, is 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 a really large geography where there's different needs in different places. So in some ways, um, you know, like if there's a bunch of these things popping up, then maybe there's a conversation about a statewide thing. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I think we can learn from each other. Just kind of thinking back about teachers unions, I think about like the statewide kind of organization um, that supports teachers in various areas. But I think that that's a really important point that different regions will have different needs and and having these things pop up organically in different areas is probably the best and most natural way for those things to happen to meet the needs of the people where they're at. Yeah, and I think, gosh, at least in some cases, um, even in the teachers' unions, there are different unions that merged mm -hmm. um, over time for the kind of greater advocacy. So when this podcast airs on Sunday, November 5th, it'll be almost two weeks since the Dallas Museum of Art announced that they were laying off 8% of its staff and reducing their public hours. Um, I think that this came as a huge surprise to the local art scene. Um, it affected many people. The Dallas Museum of Art laid off 20 employees. Um, and even after that, some of those some of the full-time positions at that organization got shifted to part-time. Um, and so when you see news like that, it's really disheartening. Um, of course, we all understand that museums and nonprofits have suffered a lot post-pandemic. Um, as we said earlier in the conversation, you know, museums across the U.S. Um, were closed for months. Um, they saw a decline in attendance. Many museums have not seen that attendance come back to pre-pandemic uh, numbers. But at the same time, um, we have museums that are raising funds to purchase artworks and, and to support other endeavors. Um, and so with the Dallas Museum of Art's recent announcement that it plans to renovate the building, um, that it just raised $7.6 million um, at its two-by-two uh, two gala. And then you have shortly on the heels of that announcement coming the news of of staff being let go, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow. Um, I don't know. You're here in Dallas, Daryl. What did you see um, as that news kind of broke? How did you see people responding to it and, and how it affected people? Well, first of all, you know, um, everyone who was affected uh, personally by the decision um, from the people who uh lost their jobs to the people whose jobs changed to the people who um, are still there. But, you know, whenever these decisions are made, someone usually has to take up the slack mm -hmm. of the people not being there. And now, um, 
you know, you might be working, you already might have been working two two jobs, and now you're working a third. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of first and foremost. Um, second, I think a lot of people were surprised, um, maybe particularly surprised by the reducing of the public hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then other people weren't so surprised which was which was interesting as well um i i was a little surprised uh given all of the you know kind of honestly for momentum the institution um had and was projecting i mean you know um doing a 150 million dollar expansion and uh having a really uh great uh two by two a fun a fundraiser um, that, you know, it's like, oh, these are all very good, amazing mm-hmm. things um, that are happening. And so to kind of see um, that shoe drop at that particular moment, I think took a lot of people off guard. And it also made a lot of people question, you know, uh, was this really necessary? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I mean, I... I I assume, I have no idea, but I assume that, um, you know, no one in leadership um, at any institution wants to lay people off. So, you know, I don't think someone was just like, oh, this is what we're going to do today. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it does get to the question of of values. And the question is, does, does that happen if there is... Um, an organization that's advocating at that table mm-hmm. um, or are there other solutions mm-hmm. now maybe in this case the answer was no mm-hmm. um, uh, regardless it would have had to have happened but I do think um, that it is kind of a um, a case study of where perhaps a union might have made a difference. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't think it's unique. You know, I think I think uh, arts organizations across North Texas are going to have to make some difficult decisions mm-hmm. uh, going forward. Um, and I think um, it's really, like, the decision shouldn't be one-sided, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that's part of maybe some of the anguish and outrage mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, all of these organizations have a um, service and role and exists for um, the community, right. you know, it's in all of their mission statements mm-hmm. that um, they are here to serve um, their communities. And but oftentimes when you get to particularly the more economic decisions, um, there's no real uh, kind of community conversation um, or even like a you know particular representative or advocate to really uh, have that conversation. So I think ultimately we're all served by a more engaged um, public and we're all served by taking care of people. And I know that our large institutions and their supporters want to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it's up to us um, as artists, as cultural workers, as, you know, people who are more on the ground to help lead the way. I like that. 
Um, and I, you know, we're, we're close to running out of time here. And I, I think I want to end with one more question. So if oftentimes cultural workers are the ones tasked with bringing, bringing this type of change, um, what advice do you have for people in the field, for cultural workers, for artists of how to move forward? Oh, well, one, don't be afraid to move forward in a small way. Like, it could just be you and your roommate and your best friend, <laughs> and that's enough. Like, that's enough to start a movement. Um, and that's on anything, any idea. Um, two is that none of these ideas are new. Um, and so there's examples of them successful um, across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, we happen to be in a place where some of the newer, f or not newer, but there's just forms that have less of a root in history here. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't in the country and people are very, very uh, generous and uh, supporting and talking to you in other places. Um, so, you know, DM, DM someone. Um, and, uh, and three, you know, when, um, when people like, uh, well, hold on, let me not say names, but, uh, when, if, if at a certain point, um, people who, uh, will not be Daryl Ratcliffe, but, uh, but when other people are like, hey, this is what we're doing, um, support them and don't be afraid to support something new. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's all sound advice. Uh, for all of our listeners out there. So thank you so much for your time, Daryl. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another Art Dirt. In the meantime, we recommend you take a look at our event listings. And if you're able, go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.